0: Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. Today I speak with Professor Jane Cable about her recently published book, Morality and Monastic Revival in post mao Tibet, published by the University of Hawaii Press. The revival of mass monasticism in Tibet in the early 1980s is one of the most extraordinary examples of religious resurgence in post mao China. People argue that in order to understand the forms that this revival has taken, we need to look beyond the Chinese state and take into account the multiple competing moral terrains that monastics must navigate in order to develop their institutions. Jane, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, I'd like to begin by asking you about your professional background and how you first became interested in the field.
1: Sure. So, actually, my engagement in the broader field and interest in Tibet really goes back nearly 30 years now. Uh, to when I was uh, still at school, at high school, doing my A-levels, which is the UK equivalent of a a high school diploma. And as fate would have it, one of my history teachers was interested in China. And that meant that we got to study modern China rather than Nazi Germany, which was the the normal curriculum uh, during that time in the UK. And then when I had to write a long essay, she gave me a book on Tibet. And that really set off what's been a continuing passion ever since. I blew my 18th birthday money on books on Tibet and and just became really passionate about study in a way I'd never actually been about my, you know, I was a, a good enough student, but I'd never really kind of had any fire for what I was studying before. So that ended up leading me into doing a Chinese studies degree. Uh, because doing Chinese studies meant I would have a year in China, which meant I would get to go to Tibet. Uh, And, you know, my uh, academic interest uh, increased uh, with that course of study. And I then went on to to do a Buddhist studies master's degree. But after that, I kind of uh, moved away from academia and worked for a series of different charities for about 10 years. Uh, And it was during this period that the origins of the book itself really started. So the book is based on or grew out of my PhD research. And the the kind of kernel, the idea of that actually started when I was working for an NGO and doing uh, research, writing and editing work uh, on issues about contemporary Tibet. And I picked up on uh, something about changing monastic economies. And it sparked my interest, but I never really got the chance to do anything with it when I was in that job. So I think it I think it kind of felt like unfinished business for me. So a few years later when I was trying to put together a proposal for for PhD research I decided I wanted to go back into academia. This this idea was still in the back of my head that there was maybe something interesting uh, to find out about this. And I started off thinking well I you know I would do something comparing contemporary monastic economies against the monastic rule and see if there were any tensions uh, between the kind of you know monastic morality in terms of the monastic rule the binaya and the kind of practices that people the economic practices that monks were having to engage in 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 contemporary circumstances and of course once I actually got into it and started doing field work uh, things became much more complex uh, and you know really the 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 kind of research then opened up into kind of revival and monastic development in a, in a kind of more general uh, sense, which is then how I ended up uh, coming to do that for my for my doctoral research and then continuing my interests uh, since then. All right.
0: And to, to move into the book, I'd like to talk about the general methodology that you use. You know, what regions did you focus on? Did you pr- focus on a particular tradition? What methods did you use to collect data
1: yeah, sure. So, um, I I decided. I mean, the approach was really oriented towards the kind of main motivation for the book, uh, which was try to, trying to get at a, a different perspective on uh, monastic Buddhism during the post Mao period, um, which would uh, really kind of take seriously the kind of concerns and and dilemmas of uh, monks themselves and also uh, their patron communities. Um, A lot of what we know uh, about Tibetan Buddhism, modern Tibet more generally actually, is is framed around the politics of the Tibet question, the politics of, of religion and state society relations. And of course, this this isn't surprising. It's it's very important, a very important facet of uh, of, of Tibetan Buddhism in in uh, modern Tibet since the 1950s. Uh, and it also shaped my own uh, fieldwork um, because I was actually I was I was planning fieldwork uh, in spring 2008 when protests broke out in Tibet, and at that point, I didn't even know if I'd be able to do the research. Um, But even though it is very important, I I kind of felt something was missing. This wasn't the whole story and that people, you know, from previous visits to the area as well, you know, the sense that people weren't just acting in relation to the state and and to state policies Um, and that, you know, that that some of the challenges facing uh, Buddhism elsewhere, you know, were also uh, relevant in this context. So I was kind of w- wanted to find a way to see if I could uh, get beyond or see around this kind of emphasis on state society relations. And uh, there were two kind of keys to this. And one was, of course, ethnographic research. So it was important to actually, you know, be on the ground, spend time, uh, talk to lots of people uh, and the area I ended up focusing on is northeast Tibet. So in Tibetan geographical terms, Amdo, uh, parts of Amdo that have been incorporated into China's Qinghai province. Uh, and I chose that area really, I mean, it was partly because I had personal connections. So it would be easier to actually, you know, make relationships in the field. Um, but also because it was an easier, a much easier area to access than, for example, central Tibet because of state policy. Uh, So, as I say, this really did kind of frame the decisions I made. Uh, So there was a kind of practical uh, uh, dimension to this. Um, And then there was also a a question as to whether I would focus on one specific monastery or a series of monasteries. I'd already decided that I would focus on uh, Geluk Buddhism. Uh, which uh is very much centered around monastic Buddhism, so I decided to kind of focus on that and not look at uh, other other traditions um, and in the end, I did end up taking a multi site approach uh, and collecting data on uh, about sixteen monasteries. Um, And again, there were a couple of reasons for that. One was, you know, that it did actually mean that I would be able to compare across different institutions, including institutions of different sizes. So you have big uh, scholastic centres where monks kind of follow uh, a very lengthy uh, scholastic curriculum. But then you also have the many more numerous uh, local monasteries which focus more on ritual practice. So a multi-site approach would allow me to kind of look at broader patterns across various institutions. Uh, And again, it was also uh, related to the practicalities of research. It wasn't feasible for me to spend lengthy periods of time at individual monasteries, again, because of the constraints of of the political situation. Uh, So it meant that I I would be able to move around a a lot and not spend too much time in one particular place. And also when it came to kind of writing things up, I could uh, be very explicit about talking about individual places where I felt that was okay. But if I felt that there were maybe sensitive issues uh, in the book, then I could... Just refer generally to a scholastic centre or to a local monastery, uh, meaning that that this would also, uh, it, yeah, meaning that, that I wouldn't have to, uh, that I could be a bit more careful about how I was actually uh, writing uh, up about this. Um, so, yeah, so history from a kind of history from below based on the uh, ethnographic research. Uh, and then the the second aspect was in thinking about well how do we how do we focus on how do we try and get beyond or not just focus on the kind of political dynamics part of that actually came out of the material i gathered so paying attention to the way that people themselves talked about for example the revival in the early 1980s and the development of monasteries after that Uh, And really kind of drawing out of that the social and moral dimensions uh, of uh, monastic and revival and development uh, so that we could so that I could kind of look at those as a way of understanding the various different kinds of relationships that have influenced monks in their decisions about, you know, how to run their economies or how to try and keep up their monastic populations. Uh, as well as thinking about the the kind of state-society relations. So thinking about the monastery and its relationship to a wide array of actors and its relationship to a a changing society, as well as its relationship to to the state and state policies.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about the background of mass monasticism in Tibet society and what it looked like before the takeover of Tibet, during the Maoist era and also the revival of monasticism starting in the 70s and 80s. Could you kind of give us an overall view of the different contours of monasticism during these three periods?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, this is one of the uh, reasons why it's such a a kind of interesting or important topic because monastic Buddhism was so important and so extensive in Tibetan society. So before the Chinese Communist Party uh, came to power, Monasteries, and particularly Gelug monasteries, uh, exercised an enormous amount of of economic and political influence as well as religious influence. And in terms of the scale, there aren't uh, any uh, clear or reliable figures on the uh, percentage of the male population who were actually monks. Uh, And it probably varied from uh, one region to another. Uh, but we can, but we do know that it was a significant proportion, and perhaps as much as 20 to 30 percent of the male population in some areas. Uh, so these monks belonged to an extensive network of Gelug uh, monasteries. You had very large monastic centres. Uh, these also had uh, smaller affiliated monasteries uh, scattered throughout the region. And some of these centres also exercised uh, political jurisdiction over, polit- uh, over particular locations as well. Um, so we can think about it as, as a kind of web of uh, monasticism uh, that grew really in relation to the political ascendancy, ascendancy of the Gallup tradition uh, with the, the Dalai Lama assuming... Uh, joint political and religious control in central Tibet. Um, so this influence of, of the Gaelic really extended through most of the Tibetan region, uh, but was particularly predominant in uh, the main kind of trading routes and agricultural valleys. So with the... Uh, incorporation of uh, Tibetan areas into the People's Republic of China in the uh, early 1950s. The initial approach or policy was a a gradualist policy. So in the early 1950s, uh, the way in which my interlocutors tend to talk about it, they talk about a cutoff point as 1958. Before that, they kind of talk, I mean, of course, there were changes, but they talk as if the system pretty much was continuing as it had been. But following a widespread rebellion in northeast Tibet in 1958, there was a, a kind of policy of strike and reform. Uh, and at that point, uh, monasteries were disbanded and underwent some uh, distru- destruction in some cases. And the, uh, some of the lamas and monks were arrested, sent to labour camps, and others uh, were uh, sent back to their villages to resume lay life. Uh, So you had a a kind of complete repression of monastic Buddhism during that period. A few monasteries were opened in the early 60s when policies became a little bit more liberal. But again, they were closed and destroyed uh, during uh, the Cultural Revolution. So when we're thinking, and one of the things I I kind of try and point to in the book is that when we're thinking about the revival of, of monasticism and mass monasticism in the early 1980s, we're not only thinking about the revival of a kind of general thing which is Buddhism or monasticism and how people uh, were invested in uh, restoring uh, monastic Buddhism across Tibet. We also have to think about the kind of local and particular uh, dynamics of the restoration of this very kind of vast uh, network of institutions. Uh, At the end of the 1970s when kind of Policy changed, Uh, there weren't any working monasteries. uh, But during the uh, 1960s and 1970s, there were some uh, monks who, although they weren't able to openly practice as monks, had continued, had maintained their vows and continued their practices. And some of the uh, monks that I talked to who became monks right in, in the beginning in, in the early 1980s had actually lived with and studied with these uh, figures uh, during the 1970s. Uh, and as one of them said to me, he, he really became social, although there weren't any monasteries, he really became socialized as a monk during this period because he was living with this elder monk. He was learning uh, to... Uh, recite uh, certain chants, he was learning certain prayers uh, and he wasn't really socialised into a lay life at all. Uh, So there are, despite the kind of this cut off and this point of rupture, there were some continuities during that period which set the groundwork for the revival of these institutions uh, in the early 1980s. Uh, The first aspect of which was marked by the return of these elders to their sites to to take care of their sites once they could could actually go back to them. Uh, And then after that, a gradual process of the recruitment of new monks and also the kind of gradual reconstruction of key monastic buildings, so particularly the assembly hall uh, and the reclamation of, of monastery lands.
0: I'd like to talk about some of the characteristics of uh, of monasticism since the revival in the 80s. Um, one of the aspects that you talk about is greater economic self-sufficiency and the move away from institutionalized alms collections. Um, what were these alms collections? What did they entail? And why are they moving away from this?
1: Yeah, so this was one of the the, the most important or that the from the perspective of the monks i talked to the kind of biggest shift during the contemporary period so during the post Mao period in uh, monastic financing when monasteries were originally revived uh, in during the first flush of revival the, the, the majority of funding actually came through a spontaneous outpouring of gifts from local populations, either directly uh, involving themselves in in kind of labour reconstruction uh, or giving wealth to monasteries, uh, but also in the gifts that they were giving to reincarnate lamas, who then kind of ploughed these back into the, the construction of monastic institutions and the funding of the kind of annual Uh, calendar of of events at monasteries. So the main cost here is actually uh, what's referred to as monastic teas, which are the the monks, uh, the the meals that monks have uh, during uh, assembly gatherings when all of the monks will come together, uh, which can be uh, for a significant proportion of the year. As the number of monks increased and as the number of kind of monasteries reopening increased uh, it became uh, difficult for monasteries simply to rely on the kind of spontaneous outpouring of gifts. And so they started to re-establish offices for monastic finance that had existed prior to 1958, so prior to the destruction of monasteries. Uh, monasteries would have, in some cases, stewards. Uh, In some cases, there would be a reincarnate lama appointed as the kind of main fundraiser. And the job of these monastic officers would be to travel around their patron communities, collecting contributions towards either the kind of annual costs of the monastery or specific uh, monastic events and activities. So this was the institutionalised arms collection, the kind of re-emergence of an institutionalised arm collection with monasteries uh, collecting money from those communities which they had uh, patronage affiliations with. And these affiliations dated back to the affiliations that monasteries had with particular communities prior to 1958. The shift away from this uh, occurred for... Uh, several reasons Uh, one was a a kind of practical reason that monks were finding it harder every year to go out to the same communities collecting money so there was a kind of practical uh implication there Uh, but the monks that i talked to also really put this very passionate about putting this forward as a moral issue that they actually despite the fact that this was a uh, resumption of a kind of traditional practice, uh, that this was something that they really had to, to stop and they had to move away from. And they talked about it as, uh, uh, you know, causing a burden on the local population, and perhaps even more problematically, acknowledged the element of compulsion that might be involved. So if uh, reincarnate lama comes to your area collecting arms for a particular mas- monastic event, can you really say no? I mean, you know, you, you, you kind of, you, you're, you know, you have an obligation, you have to, to give this money. Uh, and this, so this was, was one aspect. And then another aspect was uh, where there, there were lots of rumours circulating about fake monks or immoral monks who were kind of going around collecting money for monastic activities, but either not giving all of that money to the monastery, only giving part of it, or just doing it under false pretenses completely and collecting, saying they were collecting money for something and then not really collecting money for something. So there was also this problem of trust uh, emerging, and that coincided with people's understanding about society changing as the economy developed and people became more focused on kind of wealth and chasing wealth. You know, there was a kind of moral decline in society and it was no longer possible to really kind of know who to trust and and who not to trust. So there was the problem of of kind of burden and obligation. And there was also uh, a perceived need to move away from any kind of implication that, you know, monasteries might be engaged in practices that were somehow fraudulent or, uh, you know, immoral in any way. so these were the, the, the kind of key reasons. And then the direction they took was, well, if you're not, so if you're not going to collect arms, um, if you don't have many resources. So prior to 1958, a lot of monasteries had considerable amounts of land, but this wasn't returned to them in the 1980s. So they've got the monastic sites went up there. So you don't have land. Uh, you decide that you don't want to collect uh, arms from the population anymore, what what is it that you can do? So most of the uh, monasteries by the time I was there in 2008, 2009, had collected together capital funds, uh, which they then invested in various different kinds of commercial activities. So this could be money lending, it could be monastery shops, it could be manufacturing religious products. And they would then use the profits from those that invested money uh, to uh, fund cholestic monastic events if there weren't any sponsors coming forward voluntarily. So they were kind of drawing this line between institutionalized collection by the monasteries and sponsorship, which people just would spontaneously voluntarily come forward and give. Uh, And one of the things I talk about in my book is how we actually understand or or think about this development because it actually very much coincides with state policy and kind of state discourse of monasteries uh, as having historically been kind of parasitic and created a burden on their local populations and that they needed to develop and reform and to become self-sufficient and start making money for themselves. So when we actually look at state discourse and also state policy, so rules and regulations on monasteries and monastic economies, and we look at these developments that actually occurred, that they, they, they converge. Uh, but what I argue in the book is that when you were actually kind of listening and thinking about the way in which monks themselves saw this happening, uh, it was that there was impetus coming from this, from within the monastic community, for the for the moral reasons, for practical reasons, but also for the the moral reasons I've talked about. And moreover, they got inspiration from what had been happening in uh, Tibetan Buddhist monasteries in India. So uh, the main Gelug monastic seats had been rebuilt by the Tibetan community in exile in India, uh, and monks from Northeast Tibet. Traveling to India on pilgrimage, had gone to these monasteries and seen. Oh, they have restaurants and they run shops and you know they're, they're doing all of these things to to be self sufficient. So that changed their thinking somewhat about the kinds of activities or commercial activities that they themselves perhaps could engage in, uh, and thereby uh, reduce this this kind of burden on uh, their local populations.
0: Mm. And As you're saying, this is one way uh, where internal pressures for change coincide with state policy, but that's not always the case, uh, especially in, for the example of tourism. Um, in your book, you talk about how state policy is promoting monasteries to become centers for mass tourism, or at least they're encouraging them to become centers for mass tourism. Um, what's the reasoning behind this and what's the general opinion on this issue?
1: Yes, so the, the, the I, I was quite surprised when I did my fieldwork uh, that there, the, 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 the attitudes towards tourism that I found because monks seem to, and also uh, other people that I talk to, seem to think about it quite differently from other kinds of monastic business development like manufacturing of religious products. So in the uh, literature on uh, Tibetan Uh, Buddhism and and monastic Buddhism more generally in China Uh, tourism is actually one of the uh, main areas in which scholars have seen a convergence between state and and monastic interests so the state is heavily invested and particularly since the 1990s uh, has been really kind of pushing tourism development uh, both as a mechanism for economic growth particularly in areas with ethnic minority populations uh, and also at religious sites, but also as part of a process of nation building, so incorporating these areas into the Chinese nation. This opened up political cover or space for the expansion of monastic Buddhism uh, in various different areas in china as well as providing possible income streams like uh, income from ticket sales uh, as well as contact with potential sponsors so i was expecting i was expecting that the attitudes towards tourism would actually be fairly positive but what i actually found was first of all that tourism development was relatively uh, limited in extent. So it was only actually touching on uh, a few of the monasteries that I visited. And in a lot of places, there hadn't actually been any tourism development. Monasteries were making uh, income through other ways. But also where tourism development had taken off, uh, that there was a kind of distancing from either its importance uh, and also an uneasiness about its implications and again this this was related uh, on the one hand to the perceptions uh, that people had that because tourism development involved uh, state involvement so according to state policy and according to regulations if tourism development occurs at a monastery, then state agencies necessarily need to be involved in that. So there was a concern that with the development of tourism, there, would be, there was a kind of seeding of, of control and autonomy over the monastery. So if you're developing monastery shops or religious products, that's something that the, monast- that, the, that the monastery and the monks really have control over. With tourism development, the state has a degree, also has a degree of control over it. So with the, the kind of longer history of, during the 50s, very violent confrontation between monks and, and state agencies. There was a kind of sense that of, of having, giving away some of the, the kind of space that had been reclaimed in the early revival period. Um, but even more than this, that because of the way in which uh, tourism uh, had developed at major sites, so one example being Kumba Monastery in Xining, uh, because of the kind of scale and extent of tourism at those sites, it was also associated with the idea that, that monasteries were and monks were in in some kind of moral decline, uh, because of the disruption that it caused to monastic life and practice. But even more, the way in, in which it, it was kind of changing the minds of monks who were just kind of uh, were, were kind of gossiped about as caring more about chasing after money maybe even chasing after girls, uh, than they were actually about, you know, being serious in their studies. So the the kind that there was a lot of, I found that there was a lot of gossip and a lot of uh, talk about institutions like Kumbum, where there was a lot of tourism development. And so this also impacted on uh, the ideas of leaders at other monasteries when they were thinking about whether or not tourism development might be a good idea. Uh, because they were very aware that it could also damage their their reputations uh, and that it could have a a serious impact on their attempts to improve monastic education and to uh, kind of develop uh, discipline uh, in their monasteries as well so while as I've said, the, the, the question was partly about autonomy and control, but it was also about competing values. So the idea that you would have these two competing orders, say the state on one hand or state different state agencies on one hand uh, and the monastery and Gelug monasticism on the other hand, you had very different imaginaries and visions of, of a monastery and what a monastery should be. Uh, and I should emphasize here, I'm, I'm talking about the state as if it's this kind of monolithic thing. Uh, And of course, in practice, it's much more complex than that. There are uh, many different communist party and state agencies that interact in very complex ways. uh, And Tibetans themselves, including some monks, uh, also themselves have official positions uh, and in some contexts as state actors. But the way in which people, when they were talking about something like tourism development, they did talk about the state as this kind of monolithic other, This kind of different order uh, that was encroaching on the uh, autonomy of institutions and also having a serious impact on monastic life, practice, discipline, and therefore also the faith and confidence of people in monastic Buddhism, because they were become deeply worried about their reputations.
0: Now, are the monasteries opposed to all forms of tourism or is there maybe a sustainable, respectful type of tourism that they would like to see uh, enforced or not enforced but promoted um, that maybe isn't in line with state policy?
1: Yes, I think one of the, the big problems has been the, the the kind of direction of tourism development, maybe even also just the, the kind of scale and extent of it um, because when I talk to uh, talking to monks about their ideas about tourism in general, they were, they were often quite positive. Uh, and this wasn't just because they saw tourism as, as a way to, uh, you know, generate some income uh, or to have outsiders kind of visiting monasteries and learning something about Tibetan culture, maybe also, you know, serving to counter misrepresentations of monasteries in Tibetan culture, particularly after 2008 um it was also because it was perceived to potentially have religious benefits so karmic benefits so the idea that if, if that there's an idea that if a person who's never encountered buddhism even one time sees a buddhist statue or encounters buddhism by coming to a monastery this this will have you know an enormous karmic benefits so there's this kind of ethical dimension as well, that if if somebody comes, you know, this will have these great religious benefits. Uh, but on the other hand, if somebody comes to a monastery and they see behaviours that they're not expecting or they become kind of disappointed or disillusioned, then this, this has a very negative impact, again, in, in, in karmic terms. Uh, and then the perception, the value of monastic Buddhism will decrease. And the problem with tourism as it had manifested itself at places like Kumbum, which was the kind of architect, archetype of, of moral decline uh, amongst the, the people I talked to, um, the, the problem with tourism there was it was exactly this. It was, it was the kind of tourism that might actually give monasteries a very bad reputation rather than being something that could be uh, productive, productive, uh, for both uh, the monks and the monastery, but also for the, the kind of people who were visit, visiting uh, that monastery. Um, the, the risk with the, the kind of mass, mass tourism uh, was just that you would have people coming, they would look, uh, visit the monastery as if it was a kind of park or a museum uh, and not really engage uh, with uh, Buddhism or with Tibetan culture. Uh, and therefore the relationship could become exploitative yeah. and, and exploitative on both sides because then also you might have monks taking advantage of tourists or kind of fake monks cheating tourists for, mon- for, for money. You know, these kind of stories circulate. This this is not just in Amdo, but in, in Buddhist monasteries in China more generally, there are, you know, all sorts of stories about fake monks who kind of try and fleece tourists Um, taking advantage of their you know naivety um, in order to make some money so yes this again it's this question of of autonomy and control like it how if if you were able to to shape tourism uh, yourself then then possibly it could be developed in a way that could be uh, productive
0: all right I'd like to talk about uh, monastic recruitment and retention. Uh, in your book, you speak about the shrinking monastic population in recent years compared to the uh, the revival in the 80s. What's causing this?
1: One of the uh, key uh, causes uh, is demographic transition, so the fertility transition. And I think this is something that, that hasn't really been talked about. So there's been, again, there's been discussion about the impact of state policies on the number of monks, including the introduction of quotas to try and limit the number of monks, uh, bans on underage monks, and also the kind of impact of repressive measures on uh, monks deciding to, to kind of quit and leave, either to go to India or to, to, to cease being monks. Um, and while these uh, have you know, had some impact at particular, you know, particular times in particular places. The actual problem of of the decline in numbers, certainly at some institutions, uh, is is obviously something that that's not related to to these issues. So, for example, at, at one uh, monastery which had experienced uh, a greater decline than than any of the other monasteries I'd visited, numbers were well well below the the official state quotas. So there has to be something else going on and you know the uh, fertility transition smaller family sizes inevitably has an impact on recruitment for monastic life and this has been the case globally of course so if you have a family uh, say in the Tibetan context if you have a large family with several sons then great that you can send one of your sons to become a monk in the monastery. But if you only have one child, maybe two children, maybe only one boy, maybe maybe you don't even have any boys, but if you only have one boy, then his responsibility will be to, you know, become the head of the household, look after parents uh, and not be sent to the monastery. So this is something I think looking into the future as well, that's a a kind of major issue uh, for Monasteries to deal with. Uh, and again, as I say, it's something which is, is found much more uh, generally uh, globally. Um, but even the fertility transition doesn't quite uh, explain the, the whole story um, because it wouldn't quite explain the decline in numbers of monks in the late uh, 1990s. It would more have an impact on recruitment now. Uh, And here, again, this is reflecting uh, more kind of global challenges facing uh, monasticism. Uh, There's also the issue of uh, changing society, modernisation, changing aspirations, and the fact that there are now many uh, avenues towards social mobility. uh, And quite a lot of young men and boys don't necessarily want to be monks, Uh, and uh, don't want to join monasteries, or if they do join monasteries, uh, then after a while might decide that they want to leave. So on the one hand, there was an issue of recruitment um, causing the decline, uh, but the other reason were were increasing numbers of monks who are actually leaving monastic life and disrobing. And again, you know, people really saw this as tied to a kind of shift or change in. Uh, society and societal values so there was always a kind of moralistic dimension to it that you know people no longer had faith and were steadfast and uh, wavered Um, but also again this idea of uh, other other kinds of opportunities for for young men and boys Uh, and because disrobing had become more common also there's a considerable amount of stigma attached to disrobing but this had also started to ease a little bit because I think it had just become uh, much more common. So the the issue of uh, declining monastic population, I mean, when I was doing my PhD field work in 2008, 2009, it was really, really, really a burning issue uh, for many of the monks I talked to, um, you know, with some making very bleak predictions, uh, you know, that, that, you know, at some point the the smaller monasteries were all going to close and monks would gather in the big monasteries and then sooner or later, you know, they would kind of close as well and and you would no longer have any monks in society. Um, The research I did in 2012, 2015, um, at that time, numbers had actually started to pick up a little bit um, in a few places uh, and that, in some cases, that was due to um, lamas and monks having recruitment drives locally, so trying to get, people to send uh, boys to monasteries. Um, But it was also um, somewhat ironically also a result of of state policies uh, and repression of Tibetan Buddhism Um, because after the protests in 2008, any monks who'd been studying in Lhasa, at monasteries in Lhasa, were returned to their home areas. So that meant you actually had an influx of monks coming back to areas such as those that I was uh, working in including some uh, some uh, scholarly monks, some very well-educated scholarly monks. And their presence also attracted other people to those kind of centres. So some of the, 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 particularly one of the monastic centres I looked at, had actually had a, a kind of big, big increase and influx. Um, but that doesn't reflect the kind of broader overall pattern of the, the kind of decline in, in numbers.
0: One of the sentiments that you heard from interlocutors was that there are too many monks, um, and this kind of shows that they are competing normative visions of mass monasticism in Tibetan society.
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah, this was something I heard a lot. Of people saying, "Oh, there are too, you know, too many monks. There are too many monks," and it, it was partly, you know, linked into ideas about a decline in monastic morality. So you know, there are all these monks, and you know, they're they're not really. Being very good at being monks, so kind of what use are they? Um, but it's important to uh, so, so it's important to think about this is is not so much a a conflict between the idea of quantity of monks and the idea of quality of monks. So it's not I would argue that it's not a shift away from a kind of ideology of mona- mass monasticism, the more monks the better, to this kind of well we only want a few, but we want them to be very good, uh, because actually the idea of having good monks and raising great, you know, scholar monks and, and great meditators is actually linked in people's minds to the idea of having a lot of monks. So, you know, you need to have a lot of monks in a monastery if amongst those you're actually going to raise some, some great monks. Uh, where this kind of push or this idea that there are, there are too many uh, really comes to the fore is when people are thinking about, on the one hand, uh, Buddhism and kind of continuity of monastic Buddhism, and the other on the other hand, thinking about the Tibetan people and the Tibetan nationality. So again, this is tied to demographic transition, decreasing family sizes, and fears that the Tibetan population itself, you know, not just the monastic population, but the Tibetan population itself, um, is shrinking and getting smaller. Uh, so how do we secure its future survival Uh, if everybody you know if all the men become monks and all the women become nuns then nobody will be having children and you know this will contribute to the kind of decline and shrinking of of the population so I think this is where this emphasis on on kind of quality really comes in as well it's like if you're you know if you're a monk and you're doing a really good job at being a monk and you study very hard and you're you know your conduct Conduct is exemplary, and you fulfil uh, the the kind of obligations which mean you will, you will be better benefit to society because you will be a field of merit. Um, then you know, great. Uh, but do we really need so many monks, many of whom don't seem to be actually that serious about their their kind of monastic life and pathway? And there are still some people who 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 don't think like that and who think actually the more monks there are the better. Like this it's just you know, this, this is it, it's something which is, is just a good thing to have lots of monks. But even then their attention. So I give I give the example in the book of a, a young woman, a postgraduate student, who'd said that in her you know, she, she felt that it didn't matter what their quality was, just having lots of monks made her it made her feel comfortable. It was, you know, it, it was something that she wanted. But at the same time, she also acknowledged that, you know, if she uh, had a few children, um, she wouldn't necessarily send one of her own sons to be a monk. So th- there are these kind of tensions uh, between different, you know, different goods, uh, which kind of reflect these broader uh, social changes uh, that have been taking place in Tibet as, as elsewhere in the world.
0: I'd like to ask if you could talk a little bit about what form you think monasticism will take in the future, and and are there any new challenges on the horizon?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the the key challenges that we've just been talking about is population, uh, and particularly you know looking into the future with demographic tr- transition and changing family sizes. Uh, this this is something which which will uh, continue to be a challenge on the. On the front of financing uh, and, and the kind of broader development issues, I think there will continue to be debates and dilemmas about the the, the appropriate and inappropriate ways that, that monasteries should, should continue to support themselves. Um, I mean, even, for example, the development of monastic businesses, which I talk about as something which monks really felt they had to do, once it actually developed these business, it, prov- it provoked a whole new series of debates and dilemmas about how they should actually be run, again, tied into this idea of uh, monastic reputations. So I think that's, a key, that's another key challenge, is maintaining reputation, maintaining the status of monastic Buddhism in society, um, and particularly with the, the circulation of new ideas, uh, different kinds of engagement in Buddhism amongst uh, youth um, and their kind of intellectual engagement in Buddhism themselves. I think this also uh, may pose something of, of a challenge for uh, monasteries to negotiate. On the uh, political front, um, uh, there are uh, obvious uh, concerns about the the direction, the current direction of uh, the Communist Party policy on both religion and ethnic minorities. Um, I'm sure listeners are, will all be aware of the, the dynamics in uh, Xinjiang at the moment and the concerns that this is kind of spilling into a broader repression of Islam in China. Uh, there have been much, under Xi Jinping, much, much more uh, explicit uh, calls for sinicization of religion, um, including uh, Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, so there are, there's, there's obviously concern over how you know, these broader political dynamics might impact on, on monasteries in Amdo. But at the same time, there, there's also been increasing engagement between uh, Tibetan monasteries in northeast Tibet, as elsewhere in, in China, and the Han Chinese population, with increasing numbers of Han Chinese becoming interested in, in Tibetan Buddhism uh, and acting as students, as sponsors. Uh, so this also changes the, the kind of dynamics in terms of patronage, uh, both uh, political and uh, financial, um, for uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and also not without its own kind of moral dilemmas.
0: And I'd like to ask what's What's next for you uh, and what you have on the horizon? I imagine that you'll be taking some motives of rest now that your your book is uh, published. Um, but do you have any projects on your research agenda that you'd like to pursue?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm actually in the middle of writing my my second book. Um, they, they take so long to actually come out, but yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm, I've, I'm now looking at, I mean, I've continued my interest in religion, economy and morality and my specific interest in in Tibetan Buddhism and uh, northeast Tibet but i've now been looking more at uh, monastic lay relationships and changing practices of religious giving so looking at things more from the the kind of lay perspective than than in the book where i'm really looking uh, a lot at monastic monastic perspectives but kind of thinking in terms of the same context with processes of economic transition with uh, various different ideas about where society is going, where society should be going and how kind of Buddhism and Buddhist values kind of feed into all of that. So it's it's really thinking about ideas about wealth, virtue and social good, social justice in contemporary Tibet by looking at at these kind of changing uh, patronage practices. Um, But one of the other things that I think is important and uh, which is is maybe again thinking ahead a bit is is the thinking also, um, you know, historically? I mean, there has been a lot more work done recently, kind of digging back into uh, Tibetan Buddhism and monastic institutions, and particularly kind of the the interface between religion and economy uh, historically. But I think there's still a lot more work uh, that can be done there, which which again gives a better foundation to our studies of the contemporary world as well. When we have that kind of deeper uh, historical perspective.
0: Um, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show to discuss your new book, Morality and Masonic Revival in post uh published by University of Hawaii Press. Uh, and uh, thank you very much. I hope you have a nice day. Thank you, Alex. You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other New Books and Buddhist Studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flower by Para Forkuva.